0: So I forget who it was that said, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man expects the world to adapt to him. Yeah. Therefore, all progress comes from the unreasonable man. <laughs> and so I've always tried to, and I forget who, who said it. And so I've always tried to be that unreasonable man who tries to make the world accommodate me.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Engineered Tax Services. A subsidiary of Engineered Advisory, whose goal is to support CPAs and their clients to achieve the highest and best use of time and resources. ETS offers specialty tax services and incentives, which help expand your capabilities and ensure that your clients are paying only what is required in taxes and nothing more. To learn more about Engineered Tax Services, go to EngineeredTaxServices.com and mention the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise podcast to receive project discounts and a free CPA partnership ebook. Hi everyone, this is Heidi Henderson, and you are listening to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise podcast for accountants. I am really passionate about people and the industry. And I truly believe that the accounting industry can do better for both our clients and its professionals. So I'm going to share insights from people who have found professional success and who have managed to balance that with their physical, mental, and personal health. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope you get inspired. Accountants can earn free CPE from listening to this episode. Just visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. And now, on to the episode. Hi, everyone. This is Heidi Henderson, and I'm so excited for today's guest. We have David Spray with us, who is the founder and president of Export Advisors. He specializes in IC disk, which a lot of people are not familiar with. But, you know, I've known David for over 10 years now, and he is the go-to guy. And not only that. As far as what he brings to the table from a professional standpoint and his ability and his knowledge in this space with tax credits, David's just a great guy. And I'm super excited to talk with him today. And we're going to talk a little bit about his business and how he built this, how he's kind of evolved over time. And then also going forward, David has done some really neat things with being innovative and starting his own podcast, by the way, which we'll have to mention here um it's uh it's pretty neat how he's uh, he's um been cutting edge on that so anyway david thank you so much for being here today i'm really excited for us to sit and chat
0: likewise thank you for the opportunity heidi i was i've been looking forward to it (laughs) perfect
1: okay so instead of starting at the beginning let's start at the uh, the beginning of you diving into icy disk so what what drove you to where you're at today in terms of being the disk specialist?
0: So, so I have a background in accounting, uh, former CPA, started my career at Arthur Anderson in Houston, you know, served the obligatory uh, two-year tour of duty, <laughs> and uh, then got my MBA from the University of Houston. And my career has been split between finance and accounting and sales and marketing And I was working for a local Houston firm about 20 years ago, and I joined a specialty tax firm that did a number of things. But for whatever reason, the export incentives just seemed to be the right fit for my clients. And they, that firm decided they really didn't like that space. They didn't think it was big enough. So I had the opportunity to go off my own in uh, 2009 and uh, formed Export Advisors then, you know, I've always been a big fan of of niche marketing. I, I've heard the saying, "The riches are in the niches." Oh. so So uh, I wanted to be the only, uh, IC disc only firm in the country, and that's been um, I don't know what the focus has been, and it's uh, it's worked out well.
1: Okay, so I'm going to reuse your quote: "Riches are in the niches," <laughs> and I'm going to remember that because I I love that and you know this podcast i'm really gearing towards cpas and accountants i hope there are other Mm -hmm. business owners here and people interested in a lot of these different credits and how they apply but from a cpa standpoint i'm a firm believer that in all industries including the accounting industry that to your point finding a niche can absolutely make the difference between extreme success or you know being mediocre and i've seen it with so many different companies so i think that's so fascinating Tell me a little bit about IC disk. Let's let's talk a little bit what what exactly is this particular credit?
0: Yeah, so it's the it, uh, it stands for Interest Charged Domestic International Sales Corporation. Wow. Quite a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Hence the acronym uh IC disk. And it's actually a program that's been around in one form or another since 1971. And it's been, quote, going away since
1: 1972.
0: Wow. So as long as I've been in this space since 2005, I guess, the attitude has been, yeah, it's not going to stay around. Uh, and every few years, you know, somebody in Congress decides they don't like it and they try to cut it, but it's, uh, it's been durable. Mm. And the, the whole, so we take a step back, the 80s really launched, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher kind of brought in more of a free trade approach. And so there was a shift away from import tariffs to more free trade, but the industrialized nations still wanted to protect their own industries. So they developed these export incentives as kind of a backdoor way of being protectionistic. Yeah. These programs come and go because they are protectionistic. There was a program in I think it was 2004, the extraterritorial income exclusion. And like year one, Boeing saved like $2 billion in taxes. Wow! So that took about five minutes after Airbus found out about that to go run into the English and French governments. And then that program was gone. So these programs tend to be short-lived because they typically benefit large public companies the i c disk for whatever reason is really only geared toward privately held closely held companies so it's one of the reasons that has survived i believe as long as it has is it's um, it, you know it's not like the the fortune five hundred companies are benefiting from it, so it kind of flies below the radar screen
1: yeah that's interesting so when you when a company a closely held company then is able to utilize this what what exactly are they doing this is an export credit right so it has something to do with exporting goods is it any type of services or is it goods only
0: yeah that's a great question so the it applies to virtually any product that's harvested extracted grown manufactured in the u.s mm. that has an ultimate destination outside the u.s and the services are very limited it's only engine engineering and architectural services for Construction projects outside the U.S. Okay, so most of our clients are, you know, they they produce something, hmm. uh, and there's a U.S. content requirement. So what you can't do is like export some import something from China, turn around and export it to Mexico.
1: Got it. Yeah.
0: Well, so the idea is that you're it's helping the U.S. manufacturing.
1: Got it. So it's got to have its origin in the U.S. From the very get go, and then it goes through that entity, exporting somewhere offshore, anywhere off, any anywhere outside of the U.S.
0: Yeah, including Canada and Mexico. There's a few countries that are prohibited; they don't count. Like you know, the normal suspects. I think Cuba, Iran, Mm. you know, North Korea. Some of those companies, we countries, we don't like to trade with. And the only products specifically excluded are primary oil and gas. Derivative or yeah, distillance, raw timber, and uh, military technology—basically, things that we don't really <laughs> want to export.
1: Yeah, things we don't want to share. <laughs> Our trade secrets. <laughs> it,
0: exactly. Exactly.
1: So, so how? I mean, not to ask. I guess the question is not how. How do you calculate the credit? My question would be: Is then what's kind of the? You know, I, I really don't know anything about the value. I know with r and d credits that we specialize in, it's this range that has so many different factors, and the actual dollar amount of the credit has a million variables, so people always ask, "Well, but how much is it?" I don't know if I see disk is similar to that where well it's that's not an easy answer, but how how do you look at the value proposition for the credit
0: yeah, so. I should probably take a step back and just describe the program in a little more detail. Okay. Um, And so on the surface, so here's some interesting stats about the IC disk just as a backdrop. In 2010, according to the IRS, there were only 2,000 IC disks in existence. We think today it's maybe triple that, somewhere 6,000, 8,000 range. So it's really interesting how underutilized it is. So- in our opinion, probably 90% of the companies who would benefit from an IC disk have never heard of it. And the 10% who have heard of it, 90% of those never implemented it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so why is that? So there's a couple of reasons. One is it actually requires the formation of a separate entity that files an election to be treated as an IC disk. So right off the bat, if a company hears, oh, there's a separate entity, it just sounds too complicated. Yeah. Or they reach out to their attorney about forming one of these. The attorney's never heard of it. Frequently, the attorney, the CPA, no one's heard of it. And uh, so that's one reason people don't move forward. And then the other is, you know, they just, it, if they don't know somebody like us, it's just really a daunting uh, project. Yeah. So we have a turnkey solution. We'll actually do the formation all the documents do the uh, annual compliance and calculations, it actually files its own tax return, 1120-IC-DISC. Huh. So we actually prepare that return as well. Probably only one out of 200 companies are a candidate. And typically, it needs to be privately held, closely held, exporting at least you know, $3, 4000000 million a year of a US-produced product and the company needs to be pretty predictably profitable. Because you know, if you think about it, like a startup company who's you know, not even making money, tax savings is low on their priority list. And if you just think about the local businesses in your community, the grocery store, the restaurants, the dry cleaner, you know, none of them would qualify. Mm-hmm. So one of the challenges is that you know, even a good-sized local CPA firm with 100 You know, corporate clients that do 20 million a year of revenue, statistically, maybe one of them will be a candidate for it. So it's not cost effective for the CPA firm to try to have a whole practice to serve one client.
1: Yeah.
0: And there's so many other programs that benefit a much larger portion of their clientele.
1: Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we see that in a lot of the specialty tax areas. And a lot of taxpayers will always ask us that, well, you know, why Why is my CPA doing this? Why did not my CPA tell me about it? What, you know, what's going on? You know, should I hire yeah. someone else or why did I miss it? You and I actually had this conversation a little bit and and I, I love your response. So tell me what your response is because I love how you explained why this is not typically handled by a CPA.
0: Well, you're putting me on the spot now. I think I liked your answer better, but <laughs> I don't remember it exactly. So I guess I'll have to use mine. We We just say, I mean, we really hate the question, to be honest, uh, because we really don't want to be in the middle. We don't want to throw the CPA under the bus. You know, as a former CPA, you know, I have an affinity for the profession and a understanding of how challenging it can be. So we, we just say, look, when you factor in the city, county, state, federal tax code, how voluminous it is, how broad it is. That your CPA needs to really be a generalist. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is very specialized. You likely are the only client at the firm who would even qualify for this. And so they have to spend their time and their resources on expertise that'll benefit, you know, a large portion of their clients. So that's usually how we we handle it. We just try to protect the CPA, say, look, they're hardworking. We have to know, you know. A thousand things, we only have to know one thing. (laughs) Exactly. That's usually how we uh, approach it.
1: Well, and I I love, I I mean, I've known you for 10 years now, but I only just learned right now that you've got this full turnkey setup where you're doing the whole formation and the tax prep on those documents as well. So I think that's pretty fascinating and obviously creates a lot of value. Uh, Again, putting you on the spot as it relates to kind of the overall value proposition for this credit, if you had a client with about $3 million in exports and they're profitable, give me ballpark, even if it's a big range, just to give a sort of a general parameter. What's a ballpark credit amount for a company maybe doing $3 million in exports?
0: So, um, in fact, I, I didn't quite answer your earlier question. I probably should describe it in a little more detail how it works because I don't give the context for the answer. Okay. So the way it works is the operating company pays a sales commission to the IC disk. And we calculate that. And there's a number of ways to calculate it, but it is essentially the taxable income from exports. So let's just use an example. Let's say a company does 10 million in total revenues, 3 million of exports, and they make $2 million a year of, of net income. <laughs> so if we just did a straight allocation and we multi- you know, divided the exports by total sales. That's 30%. Times the two million of income that's six hundred thousand, and approximately that's the approximate amount of income that can be transferred to, to the IC disc. Uh, now I'm, I'm doing it very simplistically, uh, but it's going to vary anywhere from about three hundred thousand to a million in this scenario. Okay, let's just say there's six hundred thousand, so this is shifted to the disc, mm-hmm. so that's a deductible expense by the operating company. So, Let's say they're an S Corp that's going to reduce their taxable income by, you know, say 37%. The DISC is effectively a non taxable C Corp. Okay. So the DISC itself pays no tax, but when it distributes its profits, the shareholder picks up that income at qualifying dividend rates. Hmm. So basically, every dollar that gets shifted to the DISC. Now, it used to be even more valuable. At one point, the spread between ordinary rates and dividend rates was 20%, and there were fewer tax brackets, so it was very easy to say, yeah, your savings will be 20% of what your, your ICDIS commission amount is. So today, it's going to range from about 6 to 13% for a flow through an S-corp or partnership. For a C-corp, it effectively eliminates the corporate layer altogether. So it's saving roughly 21%. So in this scenario, if we take 600,000 times 21%, that's what? About 120,000. For a C Corp, for an S Corp, 6% of 600,000 is 36,000. So call it 35 to 70,000.
1: Okay. Okay. Perfect. Well, I appreciate the calculation because, like I say, even I have been familiar with IC disk, but it's, you know, I get the same questions again on the R&D side, which is, I mentioned that because it's what I understand. But it's the same thing. It's really difficult to pinpoint and try to draw those parameters of kind of roughly what that amount is. But that's helpful. And it's interesting. I didn't understand the the correlation between having a totally separate entity that is an IC disk. So that's pretty fascinating. You mentioned that Years ago, there was about 2,000, and maybe now there's, there's roughly three times that. I'm curious, and this is kind of, you know, I, I think you are the guy. Maybe there are others, but, you, you know, I've, I've known you for a long time. So you spun out, started this group, became a specialist in this niche, and you've really built your name and your company and a, an incredible service. Do you know what the market share is that you have serviced?
0: So, we um, collectively, I'm also a founding member of the IC Disk Alliance, which was an idea they've had for a while. And well, what we've, we've pulled together to become even more of a specialist in IC Disk, we've pulled together some firms that have specialized software and specialized data mm-hmm. cleansing capabilities and other capabilities to form the IC Disk Alliance to even more comprehensively serve our clients. So I think if we look at all the clients of the Alliance, I think it's somewhere north of 400. Okay. So that would be, you know, maybe 10% of the market mm-hmm. that we serve. And we think that's more than anyone else. It tends to be very fragmented Our competition are large CPA firms that, uh, you know, that we say kind of dabble in it because just the numbers, it's just not a big enough market.
1: Right, right.
0: So yeah, so maybe 10% of the market we handle. But in some industries like the scrap metal industry is one of our biggest sectors. We probably handle half of the icy discs in the
1: scrap metal business. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So so very, very um, focused on that vertical. That's pretty neat. You have a foothold in that that's really fascinating, especially considering the number of CPA firms and large firms that probably do that type of specialty work. Um, the other thing I would assume is that they they charge a premium for that. It's exactly what we've seen in our space as well, is that we've got big four CPA firms that will do this type of stuff. They do it pretty good. They charge a premium for it because they have the brand the labor, label and the overhead. But when you really look at the, the fascinating thing with some of these Specialists. Wanted to call you a specialist and expert in this space. Is that if I had to guess, your pricing is probably very competitive, but yet you probably are better than what you would find in some of those big four firms. Not to throw anybody under the bus, but you're you're just so focused on just that and have become such an expert in it. So, do you find that being the case that from a competitive standpoint, you're you're very kind of competitive because of how, how efficient you've become at it?
0: Yeah, and that's a great point. When you do just one thing, the efficiencies are extraordinary. I mean, like our revenues per employee, they probably dwarf that of a, even a big four firm mm. because it's so efficient because we've got processes to do the, you know, the same thing over and over and over. Yeah, We find that even at the big four, they really have – Limited true IC disc capability, and the reason is because remember, you know the R and D can be used by public companies, private companies, yeah. But the disc is really only used by private, you know, under hundred million dollar revenue companies. And you know, I know the big four claim that they, you know, they all have entrepreneurial advisory practices, but you know, it seems like the A talent is serving the Fortune five hundred clients. Hell. So it's just this, uh, and then we have this other joke, nobody makes part of there is as the IC disk expert. So there's really yeah. a, there's a disincentive for somebody to really dig in. And I think, I haven't calculated exactly, but I think if you look at the 10 largest CPA firms, I think we have, we've had clients move from every one of those firms and, and in every situation, there were things done incorrectly. Now, I'm not saying all the clients serve by all those firms, that's the case. But, you know, it's just kind of a perfect storm of, um, you know, their tax software has the tax return. It's a, it's a short return. The instructions are only six pages long. So on the surface, it just seems like you can hand this to a junior person and, you know, start putting numbers in boxes. But like a lot of things, there's, there's more complexity to that. Like a simple example is that there's a requirement to make a payment to the IC disk, uh, an initial payment within 60 days of the end of the year. No non-IC disc corporation has such a requirement. Hmm. Right. If you have an S Corp, there's no requirement that you make some distribution
1: yeah. by any time. Yeah.
0: And there's an and there's a number of, of requirements like this. That a a CPA firm or even a specialty firm like yours is not set up to remind clients to do this money movement. And then you've got to true up the number within ninety days after filing the disk return. And there's just some other things, you know the there's these different tests, and you can't have you have to have a certain amount of money in the bank account for the disk, but you can't have too much money. So if you have too much, it disqualifies it. If you have too little, it disqualifies it. If you don't move enough money, it disqualifies it. If you move too much money, it disqualifies it. So what we oftentimes find is just the firm just doesn't have, it'd become like a firm that does like marketing suddenly gets into tax prep yeah, and they have no calendar system they follow with any kind of calendar deadlines, like trying to do tax work without having reminders of all the different tax deadlines.
1: Yeah, for sure. So then, if a company sets up an IC disc, do you guys help, like, the ongoing management to to keep an eye on things like that? All those little pitfalls that you don't know otherwise.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a turnkey solution, and that's the other thing. I would say eighty percent of the IC discs that we come across, where they want a second opinion, probably eighty percent of the time they're technically disqualified oh. because they haven't, you know, done the things they need to do uh, regularly.
1: Hey. Interesting. And, uh, really
0: interesting. so, yeah, so we have our, our service, it's a comprehensive service. We just charge a flat fee, unlimited questions. You know, there's just, it's just an all, all in one thing. If mm-hmm. they get audited, we cover, you know, we handle it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but we do So just to give you an overview, we start in January by getting year end estimates mm-hmm. so we can help calculate what's called the 60 day rule. Because you have to make a estimated payment that has to be a reasonable estimate, mm. and the IRS defines reasonable as at least fifty percent of the finally determined amount. So that's what's called the safe harbor. So we help with that. We help make sure the money gets moved, and then you know we work with them to get all the data so that we can um, do the calculation, and then you know work coordinate with the CPA because the numbers from the disk return time to the corporate return. And uh, but really the biggest differentiator is there's really two ways to do the calculation. There's the easy way and the hard way. Hmm. And we're one of the few firms that does it the hard way. Got it. And people always ask, well, why do we want to do it the hard way? <laughs> and the reason is the hard way on average doubles or triples the benefit. Oh, wow. So said another way, it's a more granular way to do the calculation. The, mm-hmm. the simple way is kind of the calculation we did. You take total exports divided by total sales, multiplied by taxable income, and that, and then there's some other g- gyrations, and that becomes the ICDIS commission.
1: Okay. Interesting. And so it's
0: very simple, but the hard way is the IRS actually allows you to calculate the commission as, as granularly as the transactional level. So for our clients, we are allowed to calculate the commission 18 different ways for every single lot, transaction. Really? It would get to cherry pick around it for every single line <laughs> item. And so one of the reasons most other firms don't do that is there's a significant investment in software in training. And so, I mean, that really is our competitive advantage, you know, quite frankly. If somebody just wants to do the simple calc, it's not that difficult. Yeah, I mean, it should probably make sure disk is in compliance, but that's really our differentiator. And then working with the client for them to get us data that's not too cumbersome for them to provide, but still good enough that we can use. And then we have to do a lot of data cleanup frequently and pivot tables and stuff that the smart people on the team uh, work <laughs> with, me.
1: Well, that's, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I didn't realize that because, again, similar to RD, there's a couple of different Calculation methods that you can use, uh, some more in depth than others, but really making sure you're capturing. If you're going to do it, you might as well get every dollar you would qualify for. So that makes a lot of sense. Sure. So shifting gears just a little bit from the technical aspects of IC disc and setting that up, back to I love what you said: the riches are in the niches. Um, so you. We're saying that you kind of started or joined this now alliance of IC disk providers. And then I had also mentioned when we started that you have a podcast. I think it's the IC disk show uh, where you interview a lot of different people. Tell me a little bit about kind of your evolution of how you've continued to kind of grow and expand. I appreciate your marketing perspective and obviously some of that uh, drive to kind of try different things and continue to expand. So what possessed you to do that? And, and tell us about your successes or failures, if they haven't been successes.
0: <laughs> sure. So, um, so an interesting personal story on the riches or in the niches that you may find interesting. So when I was about 33, lifelong bachelor, uh, well, it's funny. At my age today, lifelong doesn't sound like 33 years old doesn't sound like lifelong anything, but... I was a bachelor until then, and then I thought I'm going to get serious by getting married. And so I, you know, I had this multi pronged uh, strategy. I called up all my married friends and talked to their wives. Hey, do you have any single, you know, any cute single friends? And but then online dating was in its infancy, and oh. so I, I took this unique approach. That what I observed was that what most guys did was they thought, well, I want a broad net, I want a big net, so. My criteria is women between the ages of 18 and 88, (laughs) all body types, all religion, all everything. And then I'll get this big net, they'll come in, and then I'll keep the fish I'm interested in, I'll throw the others out. (laughs) And I had a different approach. I said, I was looking for a tall, slender, athletic, Christian uh, woman who was committed to excellence. Okay, who was and at the time I think I was thirty-four, and my age requirement was a year older than me to two years younger than me. So I mean, okay. super narrow. Yeah, and my friends are like, "You're an idiot. Nobody's going to get back to you." Yeah, and they were almost right. But here was, well, here's where I really first learned about niche marketing. Is rarely did I have anybody interested, but when I did. The email usually went, my God, you must be my soulmate. Like (laughs) you are describing me. I'm 5'10". I played college volleyball. I, you know, I do this, you know, I'm in. And so what happened was there was, I, I realized there was this concept called resonance that my competition were all these guys with this broad marketing approach, you know, the dating competition. And so, they would just see one guy after another, you know, just looking for all kinds of women, send me your photo, you know, I'll decide if you're cute enough. And what happened was was it was just very effective because when I would, you know, have a date with them, they knew that I wasn't just filtering my answer to coincide with who they were Mm -hmm. because it was all right there in black and white. I was looking for a woman between the ages of 33 and 36 who was tall and athletic and slender and... So that's when I first learned about niche marketing, and I must say it was very uh, it was very effective. And I'm married to a woman who's five eleven, athletic, got me into cycling. You know, ambitious. We, you know, she joked we both had the same self help library. Um, so, <laughs> so but anyway,
1: so wait, did you meet her on this dating platform?
0: No, I, we actually we met through a, a common friend introduced oh. us actually.
1: Oh, but, shoot. I was, but what I'm the online did though, was,
0: <laughs> but I was very clear though, because when I was talking to this common friend, I'm like, Hey, do you have any tall, single, athletic, healthy, non-smoking, you know, fun to be around women, smart women that you have as friends. And, you know, one of them say, well, I've got this one, but she's a real handful. I mean, That's she's true. on a she intimidates most guys, she's uh, she's intense, and uh, sure, I'll, I'll take a shot. And uh, yeah, and that was uh, 20 years ago uh, in July.
1: Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank <laughs> that, you. That is a great story though, <laughs> I love that.
0: So that's when I learned about the niches. And so the same thing happens with the IC disk. Like we just picked up a client from one of your competitors who who, dabbles in the IC disk mm-hmm. who they were dissatisfied with several things about the firm, one of which was the very this particular firm had received a lot of press uh, earlier this year that did not give the firm a high degree of confidence in their ongoing abilities to serve them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they reached out to us and a couple other firms, and we ended up getting the work. But the reason we got the work was they wanted really an IC disc specialist. And, you know, they talked to a big four firm. They talked to a large regional. And there was the same kind of resident, resonance I found when dating that, like, I have a book on the IC disc. Mm-hmm. You know, the only book on it, really. I have a podcast on the IC disc, the only podcast. So because of that, when somebody is looking for an ice, a true IC disc expert, it resonates. Now, the drawback to that model, and the reason people a lot of people say my my model is flawed, is that ninety nine percent of the companies out there, we are not set up to serve. I mean, we're voluntary, and a lot of it we probably could have other services, but that's how we do it. And if the legislation ever changes, mm-hmm. then you know we lose one hundred percent of our of our clients. And you know most firms are not comfortable with that. Uh, concentration risk.
1: Sure, yeah, that makes but sense. It's, I mean, it's worked for in, us. All your eggs in one basket, you know, that can be concerning. But you know, it is fascinating that it's it's stuck around. Legislation has continued, and you know, you've made a career of something really being a specialist. And I, I think, again, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that you know that I think there's a lot of value to that in the CPA industry too. That really looking to drive the niche is such a huge opportunity of really understanding an industry and understanding that clients anymore want that expertise and guidance and someone who gets what they're doing and understands what their business is and what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis and how we can essentially come in and provide value. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure you're the same. You're an expert in disk but I'm sure you bring a lot of value um, in a very robust way uh, to these businesses. That's pretty amazing.
0: We we hope so. So yeah. So in answer to your question about the podcast,
1: mm-hmm. it
0: was really just an extension of the idea that you know in some circles I started being referred to as quote the icy disc guy.
1: Oh yeah, I thought and, that, wait, I thought I thought that was your name.
0: <laughs> you know, I own a lot of different domain names, and I really should get the icy or icydiscguy dot com. Um, but it it further just accentuated that we want to be the, uh, IC disc shop. And, uh, it just accentuated that, you know, and in the smaller your niche, I heard this marketing guy say that you can be the mayor. You can be the self-appointed mayor of any small community. You just kind of have to appoint yourself, you know, whether it's virtual or, or real. And, uh, like he talks about if you're, you know, say if you have a, uh, Uh, a pest control business or let's say you're a real estate agent and you just decide, you know what, I'm going to be the real estate agent for this little section of this town and I'm going to own that and I'm going to market on that and I'm going to specialize on that, that you really can eliminate the competition who are trying to be more generalist uh, by that. But it's scary though because you have to voluntarily say no to all this other business. It's like when you talk to an attorney. And you say, "Hey, I'd love to refer you a client. You seem like a nice guy or, or lady. Uh, what type of law do you practice?" And they say, "Well, you know, we could help with with mergers and you know corporate formations. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, but you know, we also can handle a divorce, uh, <laughs> a speeding ticket, you know, a will." And so what happens is you don't think of them for anything, like nothing resonates. But if they said to you, "All we do, the only thing we do," or help people who have who have speeding tickets who are going more than 100 miles an hour. We have a whole practice just focused on that. It probably gives you confidence that if you are going really fast that like that's so this if a friend tells me hey I got busted doing 110, I know exactly who to call. Yeah. But that's that's something I learned from Ron Baker, the famous author who wrote Pricing on Purpose, Value-Based Pricing. Mm-hmm. One of the most influential people in the CPA Profession about uh, about that niche. Anyway, I'm kind you know, of rambling on here. No,
1: that was awesome because I think that phrase uh, is literally profound. To your point that when you're talking with someone and they say, "Yeah, you know, we do all of that," that you don't think of them for anything. It's such a valid point because you're exactly right. And I've met many people like that. That it's like it's so broad that. You you don't have something to focus on, so you just kind of lose it all together. So that that was an extremely valid point. I I love that you mentioned that.
0: Well, and it's a joke. If I can just add, it's it's such a joke. If you go to any CPA firm's website, and again, because I'm am mm-hmm. a former CPA, I can pick on them
1: <laughs>
0: that they all say the same thing: we specialize in 97 different things. <laughs> Right. And and the term specialize, like, and they never say we're generalists. We we have a working knowledge of a lot of things. We're not the best at any of them, but we have a working knowledge on all of them, and we'll be your quarterback to connect you to experts. They never say that. They say we specialize in corporate tax, individual tax, trust work, estate tax, you know, R and D, cost segregation, energy efficiency stuff, bookkeeping. Uh, you know, on and then you're like, nope. really? You specialize in, in all those things.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's funny you say that. I have a um, client that I work with who I've recently met mm, this last year. And uh, I think it's so fascinating. He specializes in gymnastics facilities and gyms. And I was like, wait, like, I mean, is that just something you've done a lot of? And so, you know, have some of those clients in addition to other stuff? And he was like, no, that's all I do. And I asked him about his background. Well, he had done gymnastics through high school and then he was a college cheerleader, a male cheerleader and, you know, did all the stuff and kind of got into that niche. And now that is all he does. He has a very successful CPA firm. He created a conference, an annual conference of business owners in this space. He works, I love like, it. like he's got like a significant amount of of the market in that specific industry all over the country because he's so good at understanding how to help them with their business and understanding what it you know what it entails to run that type of a business. So to your point, I love it that it really is fascinating. And I was I was so floored when he told me that that's you know all he was doing.
0: Well, and think about the resonance of those conversations. So he gets referred to a gym owner in Oklahoma City, and he he probably doesn't remote. He probably doesn't go visit everyone for a first meeting. He has a Zoom call, and he probably just says, "Hey, I've got a few questions. I was looking at, and through his questions, it is obvious he knows what he's doing, you Mm -hmm. know. And he's like, "Hey, I'm just curious. Your balance beam? Are you using the the X290 balance beam or the 1472?" And you like the balance beam by this one or this one? Because when I was a gymnast, I really liked this one. But then over time, I've graduated. And, and and all of a sudden, you know, their CPA, their banker, their attorney, they don't understand anything about the business. It's kind of a joke. You have to educate them. They don't understand anything.
1: Mm-hmm. here this
0: person comes in, and you're like, oh, my God, we don't have to train them. They know our business. Yep. Who cares if he charges twice as much? As our local guy we're probably getting more value and we're not wasting our time having to explain how we do things.
1: Right. Yeah. And here's the next step to that. He's doing something he's really passionate about. He gets mm-hmm. to work in businesses that's something he loves, that's something he enjoyed doing through his youth and through college, put him through college, and something that he gets and and has some intrinsic benefit to him from kind of a a passionate standpoint. So that then shifts into this whole, you know, this this whole show is healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's, I think, if there's any way I can motivate a single person to be more passionate and authentic and vulnerable with who they are as a person. And it's not just about the business. And then being true to themselves, that is, I believe, where we're transitioning even in society. I think COVID has pushed us into that because we were so de-socialized for a couple of years and cut off from each other and realizing how much it matters. I think pushing into more of this Zoom remote environment all of a sudden made it more acceptable for us to be sitting in our homes and maybe a dog barks. Because, you know, I've worked at home for seven years, and I can tell you seven years ago, I was petrified if my dog barked because God forbid that one of my clients heard that and thought, you're not even working. You're calling me from your house? Like, that is so unprofessional. And Mm -hmm. today, what it it now has changed into is, oh my gosh, oh, your little girl just ran across the background. How old is she? That's so neat. And it opened this world, I believe, to letting us be more real and connecting with people and Mm -hmm. and allowing that that door to open. So, you know, in, in the spirit of that. I would love to to understand about you and how you have balanced your profession and your work and your success with what what are you passionate about and how have you balanced that? Because that's, I think, the next thing, especially having come from the CPA world, having worked in a big four firm, you know that the the requirements are so difficult, the, the hourly requirements, the time the old sense of, you know, initiation that you have to put in 100 hours a week or work around the clock or sleep at the office uh, during tax season, there's so many of these things. But there's not a, a significant focus on taking care of ourselves mentally and physically and finding that balance. And, you know, younger people, I think it's harder, but they are demanding it more now than I think we did when we were younger. And the industry is going to sure. have to evolve to that. So. I'll apologize. I'll stop rambling. You can probably tell I'm passionate once we get to this topic, but I want to know, you know, what makes you tick and how have you balanced your life with your business success?
0: So I am, I am someone, so I'm an oldest of two boys and I'm somebody who's always had a high need of control over my life since I was like, 5 years old my mother tells me and and there's a certain arrogance that i think i can manage my life better than anyone else can manage my life so i've always resisted rules controls and it's why i was never a good employee i just was they just considered me a troublemaker i'd ask too many questions and so my biggest fear in business is self-imposed constraints that I'm not even aware that I've done to myself.
1: Hmm.
0: And actually it's my biggest fear in life is that I don't, I don't. So I'm very cognizant of making sure that I don't impose any constraints on myself. But Peter Diamandis, who wrote a book called abundance says that artificial constraints actually foster creativity so that that, or arbitrary constraints, not artificial, but arbitrary. And so I've always been, you know, kind of an outside-the-box thinker, a just, you know, kind of go to the beat of a different drummer. And so, you know, probably the, the best example, and it's funny how the arguments I've gotten into from this decision. So I think eight, nine years ago, My wife has her own business. She's very successful. We don't have children. And we just worked all the time. And I said, we need to break the cycle. You know, we just work all the time. And I said, I found a house to rent in Buena Vista, Colorado, surrounded by the collegiate peaks, 14,000 foot mountains. Let's go rate this for two months and let's go up there. And the dog and I and the bikes were able to be there the whole two months. She was there for, you know, about half the time she was back and forth. And about three weeks in, I came to the realization that I would be okay making half as much money if I could spend all summer in the mountains. Mm. And so I restructured my business to be able to do that. And I was willing to even make less money. And then we were fortunate enough to buy a place six or seven years ago. And so, I've asked myself the question, like, "How do I spend all summer in Colorado?" And that creates um, lots of creativity, how I you know kind of have to to do things and and delegate things. And so, for me, being there all summer is just a reminder every year about the ability we have. So I forget who it was that said the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man expects the world to adapt to him. Yeah. Therefore, all progress comes from the unreasonable man. <laughs> and so I've always tried to, and I forget who, who said it, and so I've always tried to be that unreasonable man who tries to make the world accommodate me. Um, so that is one example. And, and so here's the funny part about it everybody, including my wife, like I've, I've had this conversation with hundreds of people, other business owners, professionals, and they find out, because I'm in Houston, Texas, most of the year, and most mm-hmm. people in Houston would rather spend their summers in the mountains. Just, it's a fact. Yeah, And they always say the same thing. Oh, I'm so jealous. Like, I'd love to do that. And I said, well, why don't you? Oh, you know, I can't. Well, why don't you rent a place for a month? Just try it for a month. And you know, it's usually a guy, your your family can be there, you can fly back and forth.
1: Mm-hmm. No,
0: no. And they always say the same thing, Heidi, you don't understand my business. My mm-hmm. business is different than yours, Yeah. you know, because of, and they, and I call it fighting for their limitations. Mm-hmm. They explain to me all the reasons they can't rent a house in the mountains, even though they tell me they would kill to do that. They would do anything to do that. And so really, I'd say the number one thing isn't so much what I specifically do. It's a recognition that I don't want to have self-imposed limitations. And I encourage other people to look closely at your self-imposed limitations because especially these days with remote working, I don't believe that a partner in a CPA firm cannot rent a house for the month of June in the mountains somewhere and be gone the month of June. Now, mm-hmm. August is a little tougher with tax deadlines and such, but I think Maybe. they could. And, yep. and I push back on that. Now, for some people, they don't care about going to the mountains, and that's fine. But anyway, I'm kind of rambling. So in, in summary, be aware of your self-imposed limitations and don't fight for those self-imposed limitations.
1: That's, that's huge. Well, and you told me something the other day. It was another quote. I don't know if you remember it, but it was something about who gets the credit. Do you remember it? What was that quote?
0: It came from Dan Sullivan, the founder of Strategic Coach. Mm. He said, you can accomplish anything you want in life if you don't care who gets the credit. And I came up with a corollary of that that says, you can accomplish anything you want in life if you don't care about capturing all the profit.
1: Mm. Yep. Um, Well, I think that's, I that that also resonated with me when you said that the other day because I think that is a big part of what we deal with again in the accounting and really any business is that we have to be able to delegate and in our in our consulting group the growth partnership we use the term the no look pass having the ability to do a no look pass and surrounding ourselves with people we trust and we know we can rely on And not feeling like we have to get the credit or every penny and being able to understand how that can open us up and, to your point, topple some of those constraints that we really bind ourselves with. So really, really interesting. I love that. Um, You mentioned that you cycle. So, is that part of being in the mountains, or is that something you do year round? Are you? You've always been a yeah. I would
0: do it year round, but it's a lot harder here. Part of the reason we chose where we did in Breckenridge is we have over a hundred miles of paved bike paths that are not mm-hmm. on the road, so like we can drive right all the way to Vale, and mm-hmm. so it's really safe and world class mountain biking. So it's pretty unbalanced. When I'm up there, I probably cycle. Three to four hundred miles a week. Wow, six days a week, and then in Houston, I just tend to go to the gym and do a few maintenance rides because it's just not as inspiring, you know, riding in the shadow of the mountains. And then just the <laughs> cardiovascular challenge of of doing a ten mile climb up a four percent grade at ten thousand feet of elevation. It you really know you're alive.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know you're alive. Well, yeah, that's to say the least. That's always been my biggest struggle is I I have always stayed active but I have zero ability for endurance and and cardio has always been a struggle. Um so have you tried an e-bike? That's the whole new rage is everybody's riding e-bikes which I've I I've really tried to bow my back against any of the you know the side by sides the motorized things because I'm like it's all things to keep us from moving and we have to move to live. But Everybody I know is getting these e-bikes, so I'm beginning to you wonder. You should get one. You think?
0: I'm a I'm a big fan of them for other people.
1: <laughs> See,
0: because an e-bike that gets ridden is far better than a non-e-bike that doesn't get ridden.
1: You know, David, you and your one-liners are like the best thing <laughs> ever.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I I that's very generous of you to say that. I was a fast twitch muscle athlete, high jumper, long jumper, sprinter, yeah, basketball player, volleyball player, and I struggle with endurance sports.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the beauty of the cycle is is you get to cheat with the cycle, and it doesn't penalize you so much. Like if you go run for ten miles, you have to run every second of the ten. There's no, but on a bicycle you can regularly coast, and I find for me. My wife calls it active recovery in the spinning world, Mm -hmm. that you actually get, it it really allows you to compensate for not being an endurance athlete when you have a bicycle. And then when you have an e-bike, you can further, further compensate. I just wanted to add that.
1: No, I I appreciate that because I think, you know, any of these little tips are things that people don't think about. And e-bikes are opening up the world to people who would not have otherwise gotten a bike or wouldn't feel comfortable going on a trail ride or cycling because there's a hill between here and there that I'm not comfortable. I don't feel like I could make it up. And nobody wants to be that person on the side of the road walking with their bikes because they can't get to the top of that one hill that is that little <laughs> to where you need to go. And, you know, I, I'm hoping, again, that we can kind of motivate people to just try something different to give themselves the opportunity to move because I really think that it is developing the whole person and and bringing it full circle back to our worlds as professionals and and consultants with our clients and taxpayers and tax seasons and the, the the stresses that we have you know it's these tools and being somewhat active or having something we're passionate about that changes everything you know and and how much value that brings to us as whole people. To take care of ourselves physically, mentally, and, and of course, intellectually. So I love the, the mention of the books as well. So before we wrap up, what if, if you could recommend any one book, I know that's a difficult question because there's so many different topics, but what is one of the most um, profound books that you've read that had the biggest impact on you?
0: That's easy. If I could have five... I would tell you those, but if I could have just one, it would be "Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl.
1: Ah.
0: Uh, would be the number one. Yeah, he was a concentration camp survivor oh. who survived only because he had the need. He had a manuscript. He was a a, psycholo- a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. Jewish psychiatrist. He was about to publish a book. He had a manuscript done. He was captured, put in a concentration camp. His book was taken from him and burned. His manuscript, and what kept him going for five years was a the desire to read to publish that book, and then secondly to share what he'd learned from being in that horrific setting, mm. and from that developed a whole form of uh, therapy called logo therapy that he developed. But it's a uh, and it's on most when you look at like the most influential books of all time, it's usually in the top five. That book, the Bible. And then a book or two by uh, Ayn Rand uh, mm-hmm. is frequently in there. Wow. So if I had five, uh, Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Mm-hmm. And then um, probably The 80-20 Principle by, I forget what his name is, who, yep. uh, who wrote that.
1: Yeah, I don't remember the author on that one either, but that is, that's a great one. Yep.
0: And then anything by Malcolm Gladwell, his, uh, his stuff, I really,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I really enjoy. But if you're only gonna read one, "Man's Search for Meaning" is a, uh, and it's a cult following. I mean, when you find another person who's read that book, there's a, there's a resonance. Because when you're reading his his description, it's it's uh, just like they were so starved that when he would go to like the the infirmary where he worked at, there was one step to get up there, and he was so malnourished that he would have to get to the step. Marshal his energy, take some deep breaths to make it up that one step, and then he would have to rest for five minutes oh. before he could, like, I like go in.
1: Um, well, I I appreciate the recommendation. Oh. We'll maybe we'll link to that at the bottom of the podcast. Um, I, I I love books. I've not read that one, and clearly, with all of the amazing one-liners, I love that you're clearly <laughs> you're clearly a reader. So. Um, anyway, we're, we're up on time, David, thank you so much for joining me. And I've, I've loved getting to know you a little bit better personally, and also understanding more about the IC disc. It has been fantastic. We have enjoyed working with you for a long time and hope that will continue for many more years. Thanks again for joining me today. I hope everyone's enjoyed the podcast. So please subscribe so you don't miss out for our future podcasts. And I hope everyone has a wonderful day.
0: Well, thank you very much, Heidi. It's been a treat.
1: Thanks.